All right, so what we're going to do is uh, we didn't wrap up chapter 16, so we're going to pick up there in verse 17, and then we're also going to cover chapter 17, which if you read it, if you did the homework, uh, I think some of the guys just chose not to come. I mean, there's like, I don't even get this. Um, it's, it's a tough one, but it, it's an interesting one. I think it's one that's setting up everything that we're going to see from this point forward. But for way of review, we're going to look at last week. And last week, John uh, saw the pouring out of the six, uh, first six bowls. Remember, these are the last judgments. God's pouring out his wrath, unadulterated, undiluted, full-blown wrath of God being poured out on the world at the end times. And we saw that they come one right after the other. Chapter 16, they, each of them gets basically one verse. That's how fast they come. We don't know the time frame, but it seems to indicate that these are all happening at the end and they're happening one right after the other and there's no break in between. And we saw that they're getting poured out on the earth. They get poured out on the seas. They get poured out on um, the kingdom of the Antichrist, but mainly they're all focused on one particular group and that's all those who have taken the mark of the beast. All those, both Jew, Gentile, anybody living on the earth, doesn't matter what nationality you are, if you have taken on the mark of the beast, you have aligned yourself with him, and now God is pouring out his wrath on them. And that's where these six bowls really kind of target is on those individuals who have aligned themselves with the Antichrist. We do know that God seems to be protecting all those who have the mark of the Lamb, the mark of God on them, the 144,000, and any who've come to faith in Christ are protected in some way. I don't think they're getting the, the sores, the boils, but they are going to experience everything else. They're going to see darkness. They're going to experience the water turning to blood. They're, they're going to be going through this, but God is protecting them from the full hit of the wrath that comes. So what were the six bowls? Painful sores on the worshipers of the beast. The scriptures indicate that they're from the bottoms of their feet to the tops of their head, and they're really, really nasty. Whatever they are, they're bad, and they're painful. That, the second one was the seas being turned to blood. All the creatures in the seas die. You can only imagine what that's like. I take this as literally. Is it, does it seem impossible? Yeah but we're also talking about the end times and we're talking about the full wrath of God and he can do whatever he wants. Then the rivers and the springs turn to blood. Fourth one, the sun is made to scorch all the unbelievers. So on top of the sores from head to foot, they now get really, really bad, bad sunburn on top of that. So their, their world's getting really good. Fifth, the kingdom of Antichrist is plunged into darkness. In the sixth, we saw the river Euphrates dried up and um, all of this, this particular one, the sixth one is setting up what comes next and what comes in the rest of the book. And the significance about this is that because of that intense heat, if this, the heat is so intense that it's scorching people, that means something has happened to the atmosphere. We don't know what it is, but it would also mean that all that ice that sits on top of Mount Ararat, Mount Ararat and all the surrounding peaks is melting and it's flooding all the rivers, including the river Euphrates, which flows from Ararat. And so it's, it's caused this flood and God's going to miraculously dry it up. One of the guys asked me last week, he said, well, if all the rivers are blood, is he drying up the blood? Well, if all the ice melts and it floods down the Euphrates, it probably washes out whatever blood was still there. So, you know, it doesn't tell us. 
but the miracle is that it's at flood stage like nothing it's ever seen before and God's going to part the waters and God's going to allow something to happen. And what happens is these kings, the kings of the East, we're not told who they are, what nations they represent. They come from the East and they're going to cross over the Euphrates because it's dried up and they're going to go into the valley that surrounds Jerusalem in preparation for the battle of Armageddon. So the kings of the earth. What's interesting about that is that you have to stop and think, well, wait a minute, isn't Antichrist in charge of everything? Isn't he king over everything? Doesn't he rule the earth? Yes. Then why do we have these kings? Well, we're going to find out a little bit more about them in just a second. Who are they? What do they represent? There are a lot of commentators, and over the years we've made it much out of China and Russia and anybody who happens to be the East, India. Are they going to come from there? Maybe. I don't know. Um, will those nations st still be around? Maybe. I don't know. A lot, a lot could happen between now and then. Um, but all we know is they're going to come from the east and they're going to be influenced by demonic activity. So whoever they are, whatever nation they represent, they're going to come across the Euphrates and they're going to set up camp in order to do battle. They're going to be made to do so, influenced to do so by demonic forces. So you can see this is a spiritual battle getting ready to take place. So chapter 17 is going to give us more information about that. But I want to, again, go back to chapter 16, verse 17, and see the last bowl being poured out. So the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now that's going to be really significant and really important. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as never had been on the earth. It is done. What does that mean? What's done? Uh, well, we know we're at the end. We know this is the seventh of seven bowls, and it's the last of all the judgments that we've seen. We're getting really close to the end, and what comes with the end is the return of Christ, the second coming. And that will then be followed by the battle of Armageddon and ultimately Christ will set up his kingdom. So we're getting close to the end, but it says this angel speaks out of heaven and says, it is done. And the Greek word has to do with it's come to pass. It's, it's as good as done. It's happened. It's, it's almost in past tense. All of this is done. Now we know we've got more chapters to go. We've got more in time to come. Jesus Christ has not literally come back yet, but it's as if it doesn't matter because he is, he will, and it will all be done. God's will will be done. This is the very same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he was teaching the disciples how to pray. And he said, your kingdom come, your will be done, same word, on earth as it is in heaven. So really what we're seeing in chapter 16, verses 17 and on is the will of God as it is in heaven coming to earth. It's done. My will is being done. Now, if you go back and, and I'm, I'm blogging through Isaiah right now, and Isaiah is replete with all kinds of prophetic statements by God to the people of Israel concerning the end times. And he makes promises to them. He tells them, you're going to go into Babylon and you're going to be defeated and you're going to be taken captive and your city's going to be destroyed. But 70 years later, you're going to come back. And it happened. But he also tells them about the end times, that there's a day coming when the Messiah will come again and he will put a new heart within you and he will restore Jerusalem and he will reign in Jerusalem. And guess what? It will happen because God says so. And so when it says it is done, it's a statement of 
God's will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. It will happen perfectly, completely as he has said. It's about fulfillment. So the book of Revelation is really showing us a preview of the fulfillment of God as it takes place on this earth. It's still out there, but I think the main reason it's been given to John and then given to us is so that we might know that God's will will be done. And really, if you think about it, if, if you look at the earth today and you, you see the world today and everything that's going on, it feels like God's will is not being done. It's just the opposite. The will of everybody and their dog is being done. But no, God knows what he's doing. God is in control and it will be done. His will will be done. Something that God has said will happen will happen. And one of the reasons I love reading prophetic books like Isaiah is that it reminds me that my God knows what he's doing. And I got to get my eyes off the world and the circumstances of life and quit worrying about what I think is going to happen or might happen. And remember, no, I know what's going to happen. I have the end of the story. I know what God's going to do and I can rest in that. What's interesting is Jesus used a similar phrase, different Greek word, but similar meaning when he was on the cross, when he says it's finished. What's finished? His work was finished. He came to do what? He came to die. He came to die so that he might be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind and satisfy the just demands of a righteous, holy God. He did what he came to do. He fulfilled his job. It is finished. He completed. And that's what that word means, similar to the other Greek word. It's an idea of completion, fulfillment. He did what he was told to do. And he did it well. And as a result, he, was, he raised again on the third day, and he went back to be with God, and one day he's coming back. Now, you may think, well, what was finished if it's not yet done? Well, see, there's two aspects to this, this whole idea of Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah. There's the first advent, his incarnation, taking on human flesh, living a sinless life, dying in the place of sinful man, so that men might be made right with God, but then there is the second coming, the second advent, which the book of Revelation is all about. See, what the Jews missed was when they read the prophetic passages in the scriptures, they only saw one advent. They saw a Messiah coming who was going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was going to be the next David. He was going to set up his kingdom on earth. He was going to conquer the Romans, and he was going to put them back in a place of prominence and power. That's why when they looked at Jesus, they went, there's no way this guy's the Messiah. And they rejected him. But he was the Messiah. He was the suffering savior version of the Messiah. First advent. And they didn't understand that there were two comings of Christ. There were two advents of Christ. And so on the cross, Jesus finished something. He finished redemption for all those who would accept him. He took on the wrath of God. So when, when we look at the book of Revelation in chapter 17 in particular, and we see the wrath of God poured out on mankind and the six bold judgments we've already seen, that's the unadulterated, undiluted, pure wrath of God. It's the same thing that happened on the cross. And sometimes we don't think about that. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the full undiluted wrath of God came on him. Now, we have a hard time understanding what that might be like because we've never felt the full wrath of God, but he did. That's why he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
Why have you left me? Why have you turned away from me? Because he was bearing, carrying the full weight of all the sins of every man and woman who has ever lived or ever will live. He took the full wrath of God. He became the scapegoat for my sins and your sins. Why? So that we wouldn't have to suffer as he suffered. So when he said it's finished, he completed that part of God's redemptive plan. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross never has to suffer the wrath of God. We don't have to suffer the wrath of God. We, we will not go through the wrath of God like the rest of the world will because we have placed our faith in him as our sin substitute. So that's what he meant when he said it's finished. Paul tells the Thessalonians, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is one of many passages I, I think really support the idea of a rapture. What's he telling these people? These are believers living during the first century. And he says, it doesn't matter if you live when he comes, if you're alive when he comes back or you're dead, guess what? You're going to be with him. You're going to go to be with him and you will be not, you will not be destined for wrath. Now, some will say, well, that just means hell. Well, it could. And I think it does. But what about all this wrath we've seen in this book thus far? See, there's more wrath to come in the earth. Long before hell takes place, there's going to be the wrath of God, undiluted wrath of God come upon the earth. And we were, are not destined for that. We don't have to worry about that because Christ suffered on my behalf and on your behalf. He says in chapter one of the same book, they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven. You bet I am. In a huge way, in a big way, come today and put, us, put this thing out of its misery. You know, call us home and then start your plan. It says, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. See, I will not face the coming judgment, neither will you. I don't have to worry about those things. So it is finished in the sense that he has taken on the sins of repentant sinners. Anyone who repents, guess what? Is reserved from, protected from judgment to come, the wrath of God to come. So that's what his death did. That's why he was able to say it is finished. And now we're reading this phrase, it is done. And it's going to have to do with what about everybody else on the planet who is unrepentant? Remember, the first six bowls were poured out, for the most part, on all those who had taken on the mark of the beast. They are unrepentant. They've cursed God over and over again. We're going to see it again today. They refuse to acknowledge him as God. And they're worshiping Antichrist. And so God's now going to pour out his wrath on humanity. He poured it out on Christ, and the ones who enjoy that are those of us who are repentant. But see, all the unrepentant people will experience the wrath of God in some form or fashion. In this case, it's going to be people who are actually walking the planet, and they will experience his full wrath on their bodies, on their lives, right then, right as they, as they live, in the context in which they live. So he says, it is done. The angel speaks from heaven and it's accompanied by the flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, all, all symbols of what? God's judgment. We've seen it before, but also a great, great earthquake takes place such as has never been done before. Now that tells me this is not figurative. This is literal. 
It's a real earthquake like no earthquake anybody has ever seen before, anybody has ever experienced before. And then it's going to give us some interesting things. It says, the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. We've already talked about the fact that Babylon is symbolic, but it's also real. It's a literal city. I believe it will be the literal city of Babylon rebuilt, restored, because it's always played a prominent role in the Bible and in the lives of the people of Israel. It is the poster city for evil ever since Babel. So I think this city is going to be rebuilt. I think Antichrist is going to choose it for his headquarters because of its, his, its history of animosity towards the people of God. And he will build it back to its former glory. And something's going to happen to it. But what's going on here? One of the things we have to figure out is, is, is the great city that's mentioned here and Babylon the great the same thing? And there are some commentators who will say yes. It's a reference to the same place. But I think that's probably not the best way to view this because of what we also know from the book of Revelation. You remember when the two witnesses were witnessing in Jerusalem, they were ultimately put to death by Antichrist. And what we know from chapter eight is it says their bodies, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Those are not pleasant terms to call your city. You know, we would not want God to come and say, well, you live in Fort Worth. Oh yeah, Sodom and Egypt. These are not good terms. They're not uh, terms of encouragement. They're divisive and they're derisive. And he says, that's what Jerusalem is, where also our Lord was crucified. Where did the two witnesses witness? Jerusalem. Where were they killed? Jerusalem. Where were their bodies lain? Jerusalem. The great city is Jerusalem. It's not Babylon. There's, there's several things going on here. See, there's three outcomes. Jerusalem, the great city, is going to be split into three parts, and we'll talk about that in a second. The cities of the world will be destroyed. What cities? Any city that's around. Any city that's still left. Will Manhattan be destroyed if it's around, if it hasn't self-destructed before then? Will there be America? I don't know. I tend to think America won't even be on the map anymore because we will have so destroyed ourselves from within. There's no need for us to be here. We're not like this really important thing that God has to have. We've long lived thinking we were that important. We're not. I don't know what cities this refers to. It's any city that's still around during the seven years of God's judgment on the world. And then he's going to bring his wrath against Babylon the Great, the city that is the capital and the headquarters of Antichrist. So three things going on here. What about Jerusalem? He's going to bring this earthquake. It's a part of judgment, and it's going to fall on Jerusalem, and it's going to split it into three parts, but it's not punitive. I really don't think it's meant to be punitive. It's preparatory. It's preparing for something. God is doing something. And we're going to see some pretty incredible things in this chapter, chapter 17 in particular, that God is going to do on the earth that we can look at and go, well, that's too fantastic. It's too out there. It's, I don't think that's exactly what's going to happen. It's figurative. It's allegorical. You can think that. But you got to, again, think, okay, what is God doing? Why would he do it if it's literal? What's his purpose? Because he's getting ready to do something. Why would he dry up the Euphrates River? Because he's getting ready to do something. Why would he do the things that we're about to see that seem so out there and so fantastic? Because he's getting ready to do something. 
He's going to literally alter the landscape of the earth. Now, again, you can go, I don't know about that, Ken. That's a little far-fetched. Okay, stop for a second. Didn't he make it? Didn't he make this? Who are we, the clay, to say to the potter, you don't know what you're doing? He can do whatever he wants. Didn't he bring a worldwide catastrophic flood that changed the literal topography of the earth? Yes, if you believe that. Now, you may not even believe that. Well, then we have another issue we need to talk about. You don't believe the Bible. But God can do what he wants, and he's going to alter the landscape of the earth. Why? Because he's got a purpose. He's got a reason. He's getting ready for the return of Christ, but not just the return of Christ. See, the return of Christ brings some important things with it. And we believe as a church, I believe that part of that is the setting up of his literal earthly kingdom. Otherwise, there's really no reason for Jesus Christ to come back to earth at all. He could do it vicariously from his throne in heaven. But no, he's coming back to earth. Why? Because he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Look at Zechariah 14.4. In that day, the day we're talking about, his, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside, across the Kidron Valley from the city of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Here's Zechariah prophesying thousands of years before, and he's saying that some incredible topographical things are going to happen. Why? Well, we'll find out in a later chapter. There's a reason for this. There's a method to God's madness. There's some incredible things that are going to take place in that kingdom that gets set up. Again, I believe it's a literal kingdom. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming to a literal earth. He's going to land on literal Mount Olives, and he's going to do something on a literal earth that's still in existence at that time. He's preparing for the, the millennial kingdom. So we're going to see some pretty interesting things, beginning with verse 20. Every island fled away. What does that mean? It just disappears. Oh, come on, Ken. You don't really believe that, do you? Why not? Have y'all been watching the news over the last few weeks of that island that just suddenly appeared out in the Pacific? That, I mean, literally some, some fishermen noticed this island that they'd never seen before. And then, of course, people start getting on their computers and they start looking at um, satellite images. And sure enough, this island has just appeared. It's the result of, of uh, seismic activity underneath the water, but it's appeared. And they, all the scientists say it, it won't last 24 hours. Well, they're wrong. It's still there. And now there's vegetation. And it's, it's got its own ecosystem already. If they can appear, why can't they disappear? It can happen. Islands are going to flee. Mountains were, will no longer be found. There's evidently going to be some kind of leveling that takes place because an island is nothing more than the tip of a mountain that's underneath the water. All right, so it's going to go down and other mountains are going to go down and there's this leveling that's going to take place. Why? Because God's getting ready to do something. God is changing the earth that he created. And then it says great hailstones, about 100 pounds. Okay, stop, Ken. There's no way. <laughs> Nobody has ever seen a 100-pound hailstone. I'll tell you this, back in that Mayfest, when all the hail came and I lived on the east side of Fort Worth, I saw hailstones the size of softballs that went through my neighbor's roof 
through a ceiling and damaged furniture. I'd never seen that before. Well, if a hailstone is nothing more than water that freezes, gets blown back up and freezes again, gets heavy, falls back down, the wind blows it back up, freezes again, falls back down, and it's just this cycle until it gets the size of a softball, what's, what's keeping it from getting to be the size of whatever it takes to be 80 to 100 pounds? God. God could do that. Yes, it seems far-fetched, but the, the greater question is why? Why would God do that? Has anybody ever seen a hundred pound hailstone? If you did, would it get your attention? If it hits you, it would get your attention. God is doing things that nobody has ever seen before. We've heard that phrase over and again, like nothing that's ever happened on the earth, like nothing anyone has ever been through seen. Eight, a hundred pound hailstones fall from heaven on people and look what they do, they curse God. You and your, your hundred pound hailstones. It's God getting the attention of the world. Islands flee, mountains are no longer found, hailstones fall from heaven, they fall on people. And you can only imagine the result of getting hit by a hundred pound hailstone, a ball of ice. It's not gonna be pretty, but they curse God. They don't praise him. So what is all this? What's the purpose behind it? Again, is it literal or figurative? I think you take it literally unless you have a really, really good reason not to. And I don't think this passage gives me a really good reason to say, well, it's all figurative. I just don't like it. I don't understand it. It's too fantastic. We're talking about God here. We're talking about the, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, all-powerful God. Nothing is impossible for God. The real question has to be, the why, why would God do it? First of all, because he's God. Second of all, because he knows what he's doing and he's got wisdom beyond my imagination. I, I don't understand the ways of God, but God is doing something in preparation for the end. So just because it's far-fetched, just because I have a hard time, a difficulty understanding and I can't just write it off as figurative or I need to write off 90% of the book. And I don't think that's wise to do. So God's going to level the topography of the earth. There are some commentators who say it's going to bring it back to the pre-flood condition, that the flood literally changed the topography of the earth. It, it just distorted everything. The world didn't look the same before the flood as it looked after the flood. That's way out of my pay grade. Don't fully understand it. Could be true. Don't know. All I know is what I read here. It's going to change the way the world looks. Why? Because God is preparing to do something in Jerusalem to make it the focal point of the entire world. Now, it's interesting to think that in our, in our world right now, Israel kind of is the focal point of the world, mainly the hatred of the world. And we're seeing a whole lot of anti-Semitic um, diatribe coming out of our own political leaders against Israel. And there are nations that literally want to destroy Israel. But this is a case of God elevating Israel both physically and prominently to a place where they belong as his people, particularly Jerusalem. Again, Zechariah chapter 14, look at this. All the land from Geba, north of Judah, to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become one vast plain. This is a prophetic passage talking about the end times. But Jerusalem will be raised up in its original place and will be inhabited all the way from the Benjamin Gate over to the side of the Old Gate, then to the Corner Gate, from the Tower of Hananel to the King's Wine Presses. And Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. This is a prophetic promise of God talking about the end times, and here we are reading about it. 
<coughs> that God's going to do something great. God's going to level the land. It's going to become one vast plain, but Jerusalem will be lifted high. If you've ever read the Psalms, you've read through the, uh, what are called the Psalms of Ascent. And all those Psalms are Psalms that were sung by the people of Israel as they made their way to Jerusalem on the days, the feast days for Passover. And, and they would sing those songs and they all have something in them about, let us go up to Jerusalem. Let us go up to Jerusalem. It's this idea of going up to the heights of Jerusalem. Now, literally in that area, it is higher than most places around it. But we're going to see in the end times, it will literally be higher than any place else. God's going to physically lift up Jerusalem. Why? Because he can. And because he's got a point he's making. This, this city that has been destroyed multiple times and the people who live in that city who have been tried to be eliminated multiple times over the centuries will be lifted up by God and set to a place of prominence. So all this fantastic stuff happens. And yet what do the people on earth do at that time? They curse God. So they curse rather than confess. They know what's, it's coming from God, but they're going to shake their fist in his face rather than repent. They're going to rail instead of repent. Railing against God, that's what the world does. That's what the world is doing right now. They, they, they curse God. They rail at God. And they do it by acting as if he doesn't ex exist and coming up with their own gods, their own way of worship, which is going to be important as we move into this chapter 17. So that's the seventh bowl and then what happens immediately after that, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, now I don't know which angel this is, I don't know which bowl he poured out, it doesn't matter. But he's one of the seven who poured out one of the seven bowls. And he comes to John and he says, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. This chapter is going to make your head literally spin. It is so full of imagery. It's so full of confusing thoughts. And we got to figure out to the best of our ability, guys, what this might mean. So he mentions the great prostitute who's seated on the many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Then he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. So he's, he's getting this, this imagery with no explanation. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now you got to get into his sandals and think, what was this like to see this? I mean, I think this guy's so confused and he's about to explode with questions. And I think the angel sees it as we'll see in a second. He'll, he knows he's confused. He knows he's struggling to understand what any of this means. Now he's seen some pretty incredible things, right? Already. But this is like a, a, just a dump of incredible things. Fantastic imagery that comes with no explanation, at least initially. And it's leaving John in the state of, confusion. He's perplexed. And he sees Babylon the great. He sees the woman. He sees all these things. Matter of fact, he sees six different things, it seems, that he's got to try to figure what are these. And his job is to write them down and explain them to you and I. I would have just put down the quill and just said, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. 
I, this is beyond me. I, can't, I don't even know how to begin with this. But here's what he describes. The great prostitute, the kings of the earth, the dwellers on earth, a woman, a scarlet beast, and Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes. All of that comes in just a few verses, and his head is spinning, and so is yours. Yet what I want to concentrate on is this, because this, the great prostitute, is key to, key to understanding the rest as far as I'm concerned. Who is the great prostitute? What does it represent? Is it a literal woman? Here we go, literal or figurative. Now, guys, some of this, I think, is easier than we make it. And, and you may say, well, Ken, you, you cherry pick. You, you say, this is literal and this is figurative. This is literal. Well, I think if you just use a little bit of common sense, is this a literal woman? Has she slept with every king of the earth? Is every person on earth drunk with the blood of her immorality? In other words, have they all had sex with her? She's a very tired individual if they have. I don't think this is a literal woman, okay? It's not that hard. So it's got to be somewhat figurative because it says the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. Literally? Are we talking about real sex? You know, all the kings had sex with whoever this woman was. How did she get around? You know, it's just not that hard. The people of the earth are intoxicated with their sexual immorality. They too have slept with her somehow. That's not what this is saying. I don't think this is a literal woman. I think it's a figurative woman who represents something even greater and more sinister. The key is she's a prostitute. We know from the Bible that prostitution was looked down upon. And in the Old Testament in particular, Israel is referred to by God as a prostitute. An, an, an unfaithful wife, an adulterous woman. Remember the, the, the book of Hosea. Hosea is told by God to go and marry a prostitute. He marries her, has children by her, and then she goes out and has sex again with men who are on her husband. And God says, bring her back, redeem her, and marry her again. And he does. It's a picture of Israel. Infidelity, unfaithfulness, adultery, spiritual adultery. All this talk about sexual immorality has more to do with spiritual adultery that is rampant in the world today and will be rampant at this time. So who is this person, this thing? Well, it tells me in verse 3, he sees this woman sitting on the scarlet beast. And I think the woman and the great prostitute are one and the same as you finish the chapter. He's seeing her in two different venues He's seeing her described as the great prostitute, and then he sees her sitting on top of the beast. She has some relationship with this beast. But again, what about her? She's got purple and scarlet. She's gone on gold and silver and pearls. She's got this golden cup full of abominations. It's interesting, if you go back and you read the uh, reformers back during the 1500s and 1600s, who did they think this represented? We did the Reformation, guys. Who did they think was the great prostitute? Rome, the Catholic Church. Pope is the Antichrist, and the Catholic Church is the great prostitute, riding on the back of the, the Antichrist. Well, they were wrong. They were well-meaning, but they were wrong. What they got right is that it, it is representative of the church, a church, an apostate church, a false church, a fake church. That's really what this represents. And she's got marked on her forehead this, this phrase, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. So she's got a tie to Babylon, the city of which Antichrist is over. She's riding the back of the beast 
and she's drunk with the blood of the saints. She has played this, this apostate church that's going to rise up in the end times is going to play a role in the persecution and martyrdom of believers. All those who come to faith as a result of the witness of the 144,000 Jews, the two witnesses sent by God, the angel flying through the air declaring the eternal gospel, this church is going to persecute and put to death believers. Now, what's really interesting about this, guys, and I think the reason this, it's happening this way is the world is addicted to religion. Our world is addicted to religion, has been since the fall. That's why in Romans, Paul says, they are without excuse. God has revealed himself in the heavens. God has revealed himself to mankind, but they would rather worship the creation rather than cre the creator. People, every person on this planet worships something. They all practice a religion. Every politician that, that represents this nation worships some religion of some kind. And it shows up in their statements. It shows up in what they pass and what they believe in. So I think this is a picture of this false church that's going to rise up during the end times. And she's riding the scarlet beast. Who's the scarlet beast? Well, it's got blasphemous names. It's got seven heads and, heads and ten, ten horns. What is that? Well, we've seen it before. Again, we got to keep the context. Revelation 13, 4, I stood in the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his horns, 10 crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Who is it? It's Antichrist. We've already looked at this. So here he is a few chapters later, and he sees her, the woman, the, the prostitute, the false church riding the beast, the Antichrist. What does that mean? They have a symbiotic relationship. She gets her power her authority from Antichrist. He's using this church, this false church, to accomplish his will and ultimately the will of Satan. So you have this false church that rises up. But Antichrist is described with seven heads and ten horns. What is that? What are these things? What do they represent? And why would he be pictured this way? Because the Antichrist is going to be a leader of other groups, of other people. He's going to create confederations. He's going to use other nations. He's also going to be kind of the cumulative effect of all the rebellion against God that has happened over the centuries. Every nation that has ever stood against God's people, he will represent. That's why when it talks about um, the seven heads and what does that represent and what does it mean, it's talking about past history. It's talking about other nations. And we'll look at that in just a second. See, there's method to the madness. There's, there's a reason for what we see in this book. But I love what it says. I, I saw her and I marveled. That word literally means I was like dumbstruck. I, I don't get this. I don't understand this. And the angel says, why do you marvel? Because I don't get it. Didn't you just see what I just saw? Do you, I don't get it. And he says, the angel says, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not. And at this point, I think if I'm him, I'm going, okay. All right, now, now you're, getting, you're, just, you're just pulling my chain. The beast that was and is not. Could you, you said you were gonna explain it to me. Now it's just getting more confusing. Well, it's gonna get worse. And is about to rise from the bottom of the spit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is not and is to come. And he's, I can just see John getting so frustrated. And he wants to punch the angel in the throat. He just can't reach his throat. 
because I think angels are probably fairly big. And he says, oh, and this calls for wisdom. Yeah, that's why you're here. You're supposed to explain this to me. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Okay, which is it? Is it seven mountains or seven kings? You're not helping my problem here. I'm no further along than I was before. Five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. This is like getting advice from Yoda. You know, you're talking in riddles now. And, he, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh. This is why people don't study this book, right? It's like, I knew I shouldn't have come to this study. And it goes to destruction. And the 10 horns, as you saw, are the 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast and they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And those with him are called faithful chosen. This is the only really positive thing in the entire section. Well, finally you start talking about the King of Kings. Come on back. What's going on here? What, what do we, what do we have in all of this? Two major things. One, the prostitute, the woman, I believe, is a false religion, a false church that rises up. It's the apostate church. It is the, the we've got a false messiah, we've got a false god in Satan, and we've got a false prophet, and now we've got a false church. And it's going to be closely associated with Antichrist. What does Antichrist know? People need religion. People crave religion, something to worship. And he's going to allow, when he first comes to, to power, we know that if the church does get raptured, as I believe it does, at the beginning of the tribulation, and he shows up on the scene not long after, one of the first things he's going to do is set up this false church, allow it to, to manifest itself, and he's going to support it. Why? Because the world without the real church is going to be in desperate need for something to replace it. They're going to be looking around. And guess what? All the religions that are left are false and they're going to consolidate under one religion and he's going to be behind it. And they're going to ultimately worship Antichrist. So why is this apostate church even necessary? I think it shows up at the beginning of the seven years. And you remember at the midway point of the seven years, he sets up an idol of himself in the temple and he's going to turn against that church and eliminate it from the face of the earth. He's going to get rid of it because he wants no competition. But the early part of the seven years, he's going to need that false church to focus people's attention and get their eyes off of who? God, Jesus Christ. Because again, remember there's 144,000 witnesses talking about Jesus. There's the two witnesses. There's the angel flying through midair. And he needs everybody to get their eyes off of that and focus on what? Something other than God. So he raises up this false religion, this apostate church. The, the political landscape, the religious landscape is going to be so screwed up during these seven years. And it's going to get worse as we move along. And he comes to power at the beginning. He sets up a confederation of world leaders. That's what it's talking about with these kings. And he's going to set up this false church. And he's, he's controlling everything. He's manipulating everything because he has a plan. And it's a plan that's come from Satan himself. So he says, the seven heads are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. Now, who are these people? What is this a reference to? Here's what I think it is. The five that have fallen are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Five former nations, 
all nations that at one time defeated and persecuted who? Israel. But they're gone. They've fallen. They're not around anymore. What's the uh, one that is? It's Rome. When was this letter written? Sometime in the first century. Who's writing it? John. He's living on the island of Patmos. Who's in charge during the first century at that time? It's Rome. They're the one that is. What's the one that's to come? Antichrist kingdom. See, it's a prophetic statement that those kingdoms were once great. Those kingdoms were once powerful. Those kingdoms once persecuted and tried to destroy Israel and they're gone. Guess what? There's another kingdom coming. Antichrist kingdom. It's going to try to do the same thing, but it's going to suffer the same fate. So the beast represents the seventh kingdom. And it says it's only going to last a little while because he's going to only going to reign for literally seven years. And he's going to have most of his power in three and a half years, 42 months, the second half, but it's not going to last. He's the beast that was and is not. He's the eighth, but it belongs to the seventh. What in the world does that mean? Well, back in chapter 13, we saw that he was put to death and he came back to life. He was resurrected. So that means when he died, he lost that kingdom. He comes back to life. He starts an eighth kingdom. He comes back to power. It'd be like if our president died today, don't clap if you're of that ilk. If he died today, but suddenly came back to life, he'd be president still, but he'd have a new reign. He'd, be a, he'd have a new rule because he died, but he came back to life. That's what this is a picture of. He's going to lose his kingdom by death and he's going to regain it by being resuscitated. So it sounds really confusing, but it doesn't have to be confusing if we look at it that way. Then he goes on. The angel says, the water you saw are the, the peoples of the earth. The peoples of the earth are going to worship this religion. They're going to be addicted to this religion. But he goes on and he says, the 10 horns are going to turn against her. They're going to persecute her. They're going to abuse her. They're going to defeat her. They're going to get rid of her. Why? Because these 10 horns are not what we saw before. They're not past nations. They're nations that will exist during the tribulation. Who are they? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. They're 10 kings and they're not past kingdoms like we just saw, Greece, Medo-Persia, you know, Rome. They're ones that will live at that time because it says they have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. He will give authority to these 10 individuals, these 10 kings. They will align themselves with him. He will have a confederation of 10 kings and he will rule over them. And he will cause them to attack the prostitute, to attack the false religion. He will basically turn on this religion, this false religion, and remove it. They'll hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Basically, uh, eliminate her. Why? He wants all the focus. He'll share his power with no one. He'll share worship with no one. He wants to be the only religion in town. And he will be by the end of the seven years of tribulation. So all of this starts with the midway point when he des desolates the temple, gets rid of that religion, and ultimately it's himself as God, and there's no place for an apostate church. See, it's still going to be religion. They're just going to worship him. And here's the key. The thing, if you take nothing else away, look at this. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God is going to eliminate all false religions. 
See, God hates false religions. God is a jealous God. God hates that people worship trees and in governments and other religions and false gods. And ultimately, he's going to get rid of them all, leaving just one, Antichrist and his false religion of, of himself. And he'll deal with that as well. God will do it. So as, as we've said the last few weeks, what do we do with this? How do we make this practical? Well, here's your questions. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. What should those words tell us about the sovereignty of our God? And how should it impact your faith? See, God is doing some incredible things in the end times. We see him doing things that are impossible. 100-pound hailstones, islands being leveled, and mountains being leveled, and God changing the topography of the earth. But he's also putting into the hearts of these kings who think they're in control to do his will. Why can't we trust him right here, right now? Same God, same power, but we tend to doubt him. Secondly, we've seen the battle that can take place between government and religion. It's taking place in our lifetime. Why do you think Antichrist will bother to even use an apostate religion to accomplish his goals? Why is religion so important to people on this earth, and why do they gravitate towards it? Why is that true now as it will be then? Finally, what's the significance of John describing the kings and the people of committing sexual immorality with the apostate church? What does that look like in our day? It doesn't mean literal sex. It's talking about spiritual infidelity, spiritual immorality, unfaithfulness to the one true God. Why, what, where do we see that today? And if you have a tr problem answering that question, please come talk to me because we're not living on the same planet. It's all around us, guys. And so really what I, more than anything else, as always, I want you to think about the sovereignty of God, the power of God, that he is in control and how that can affect you. But discuss these things and encourage one another to keep trusting in him because guess what? It is done. It's as good as done. His will will be done. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their faithfulness. I pray that you would bless their time around the tables, their conversation. May they encourage one another. May they challenge one another to be men of faith that they would stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong, trusting that you know what you're doing and that you're in complete control of everything happening around them and everything that will happen in the future because you're that kind of God. And we pray this in the name of your son, our savior and our coming king, amen.